0: You are listening to a special episode of the Bondzilla podcast. This week we take a deep dive into everything James Bond.
1: The name's Bond. James Bond.
0: All right, everybody. Hello hello, and welcome to a a brand new edition of the Bondzilla Deep Dive. It's our Bond Deep Dive for the month. I am Nick. I'm Will. And uh, yeah, we're going to be doing some more deep diving. Yeah. You know, getting that. Just
2: getting deep in there. Yeah. Just in the in the in the in the cores of. The Bonzilla. The core? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were gonna pick up on that. It's finally your your precious core episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it is coming. Imagine yeah. Someday.
2: Imagine like the 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 like the the copy that we have for that episode where we just sh- do the biggest stretch of all time to say like how it is related well, to Bond and Godzilla.
0: The, like idea I had at some point in the way future was like to do like a a host pick episode where we just, like, do something just for fun. You know, right. maybe take a break from the Bond and Godzilla stuff. Right. But then I was thinking, On the like,
2: Bondzilla podcast. Yes. On the... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because that marks
2: the, the...
0: The point of no return. That Yeah.
2: You're, you're, you're on a slippery slope there yeah. where literally the hosts are like, you know, we're, we're tired of the literal yeah. conceit of well, our show. I was like... Let's thought, talk... Like, and, and then you do it for the core... <laughs>
0: Well, that, that was going to be my thing because I was like, if I did a, if I did like a host pick and I picked the core, I would just I would kind of feel bad because I feel like there would be other movies I'd rather pick, and that may even have a little bit more connection to the Bond Azilla thing that we do. Right. But I'm just still so inherently now, fascinated by the core. You
2: have to be like, all right, listen, James Bond has gadgets. And there's some gadgets in the core. And what bigger monster is there than Mother Nature? And nature is Earth. Mother Earth. Yeah. And that's that's how you get to the core. Seven Degrees of the Core by the Bonzilla Podcast. Hilary Swank. S- could starting, could can, it, it is bond. Hilary Swank. I could not think it's actually that's a bigger name than i thought i knew it's aaron eckhart that movie has a lot of well i was gonna say a lot of people in it but then it's got like dj qualls in it yeah it's like aaron eckhart stanley tucci hillary swank and uh dj qualls Mm -hmm. is there anybody i bet there's like a there's like a guy like a famous guy who plays like like a military dude in it
0: let's see there's uh yeah uh bruce greenwood he was like one of those. Yes, actress. yeah. Is he? Is he? But is he,
2: He's like one of the guys. He's like the guy who gets like the rock in the head.
0: Remember, there's that one yeah.
2: thing where like somebody gets like a rock. Well, this in is the why we have
0: to watch the movie. Will I mean? No. Here's here's
2: a better version of this episode. We don't watch it. We don't look up anything about it, and we just piece together from our memory yeah. of what happened in the movie. You would be surprised. By how much I think you, so, the audience would be surprised by how much we remember. The movie opens of the core. up
0: when like all the pacemakers stop. And is that those, the first
2: one? I don't think. That's is that no, the that's first the opening instance? scene.
0: I so distinctly remember that because yeah. it's like supposed to be the shock value where the guy just dies and then you pan outside and there's just chaos because everybody like has a pacemaker. Oh, because all
2: I thought no 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 I thought all the birds. No, that's a later one. That's a later one. That's a later one. No, right. the
0: the cold open is the pacemaker stuff because I remember there's distinctly a shot where a clown is like running like to like right. at a, like a, a crash bus or something like that
2: right and then like Aaron Eckhart is like a he he's like he used to be like a a, a, a he he's like a scientist but he didn't play by the rules right yeah and he, he's like one of those so they have to go like find him at his like dingy apartment mm-hmm. and then and then he meets Stanley Tucci who's like the scientist who makes all the big bucks right and then they're like we're gonna have to make a giant
0: drill yeah like to go to the core we have have to get unobtainium yeah it is it is called that as it is called in avatar and and
2: then i remember they were like that rock it's black because it's not it's not supposed to like see hollow matter and it's a giant (laughs) geon or something like that and then and then dj qualls wants his hot pockets yeah
0: and then um, and then at the end he's like the whales the whales that's
2: what it is yeah and then the
0: whales at the end And then so the bad guys like they accidentally stopped the core that's what we kind of figured out the bad guys? Well there's like the there's ap- no bad guys Well the, no there's like the they're like the people in charge but then you find out that like they're the ones who accidentally stopped the core in the first place
2: You mean Oh oh stopped it because yeah. that's the for those of you who don't know because we might as well just say <laughs> yeah the the plot of the core <laughs>
0: Is that the core? The Earth of the the core of the, <laughs> the Earth, earth of the stops core? moving, right? Because the the core, you know, the core rotates just as the Earth rotates around the sun. Uh, so it stops Which moving. Which they will
2: explain in the movie using a peach, if I remember yes. correctly. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so basically, they're like, well, if the core is stopped for too long, then you know, the Earth is going to go into chaos. Right. And it already is because like birds can't like read the magnetic poles anymore and like lightning storms are destroying they're going crazy and it's like a geostorm of some sort (laughs) and then yeah and then so basically like you have to restart the core somehow but there, no there's like a thing where it's like they did another project of drilling into the earth and they're the ones who accidentally stopped it in the Uh, first place i
2: don't see i did not remember that and so like there's a whole
0: thing where it's like there's kind of like a cover-up going on but then the guy like the people on the surface are like, no, we're going to expose you, right? And then the yeah, the, the whole thing that yeah, then well, Stanley Tucci, I think, is he the one? He stay, di- he stays behind. He's he dies laughing, right? Because he, he yeah. starts like praying or something. No,
2: no, because his whole thing is he he's always like he's always like recording for his memoirs. Yes. Oh and, yeah 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 yeah. And, and then he's recording and he's literally making the sacrifice play, and he's like, what am I
0: doing? <laughs> It's 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 a, it's yeah, a classic and it, Tucci and moment. It, it like he he's laughing, and it, it like zooms in on like the like the countdown timer for his explosion. Yeah,
2: yeah. You can definitely tell that we were gearing up for a movie to come out next month, and and now we just simply right. don't have that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> indeed.
0: Um. Uh, I mean, that might as well be our review of the core. <laughs> it's just the thing about the core. No, no. The, the audience needs more. Yeah. More uh, core. I mean, at some point, maybe. Could be a bonus episode down the ways. Like not like an actual official thing. Just Either something.
2: that or it's just like core talk. Like where it's just like every now and then the we talk
0: the core minute. The core minute, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I do not know if I could handle the core minute. I mean, if
2: anything, the pacemaker scene is probably just a minute of the film.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? That actually would be a genius play because most of the minute podcasts are like dissecting like amazing movies. Like right. like, like, like like movies that people like Respect, like you know, <laughs> like heat, uh, like that they, they, they may you know uh, respect, like heat. There, the heat was the big one, right? And then, like I know, like the there's the Muppet Minute podcast where they they've now they just about finished up their second Muppet movie that they've done in minute time. I don't know. I might, see, I might, I would, key, I would kind of be down to do a micro core podcast. See, the key though, but the other thing
2: is that the minute podcast could also be for movies that people consider are bad the issue with the core is it's not a movie people consider no. at all <laughs> it's, it's never and we have given more love and attention to the core than i think has ever been spoken about yeah in years i mean it very honestly. much distinctly
0: like because i saw it we watched it in science class right, right. i mean it's, and it's
2: movies i saw it in theaters
0: yeah i saw it in science class <laughs> of course like you know classic science
2: class movie oh that's the name of the podcast of course, or like that's our catchphrase. <laughs> of, of course, course. <laughs> of course,
0: <laughs> of course, the the core
2: stopped, the the, the, the pit of the peach stopped yeah. uh, um, uh, rotating.
0: But it's like a you know science class movie, such as The Core and uh, Gattaca. That's another classic science class movie. I've
2: never seen Gattaca. But I think people, I liked it as a kid, it's fine. It's but I, I feel don't. like people would know Gattaca even more than the oh, core. They, of course they Nobody do. Nobody would know the core. No. Like
0: we need to do we the even, core, Geostorm. <laughs> are we just gonna do a disaster films podcast? But like next? bad
2: ones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, like volcano? Is that is that a bad one? That's the one with Tom there's the there's the two volcanoes movies. Yeah. There is the core not the core, volcano with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, Dante's Peak. And Dante's Peak. Right. Which is something we might look at yeah. Uh, in this podcast. And then there's Deep Impact and then Armageddon. Armageddon.
2: Um, those two movies shouldn't even be related. They're so different movies. Yeah. yeah one one is a political procedural type movie mm-hmm. and the other one is a excellent commentary track. <laughs> One's the best.
0: But then you have all those se- like classic 70s disasters like the Poseidon Adventure, Tower yeah. in Inferno, you know.
2: Yeah, disaster
0: yeah. films. It's disaster movie.
2: What if? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, what was it like that you said? Like just just read a plot synopsis of one of those movies. It's just
0: oh oh like re- of like the disaster like, movie, yeah, like, movie, like epic movie. It's it's like movie. a fever dream. Yeah. It's a fe Like I remember reading this because I remember. This, I mean, we're getting way off track, but again, we this is very distinctly like. We were very excited for a movie next month, and now we're just kind of shooting the shit. Well, okay, all right. Well, I can
2: get it back on track. Could Bon fight a natural disaster? Oh, uh, it didn't come out right. No, in my head.
0: It made it made more sense. I was than, gonna say how I said it. I believe that Casino Royale is parodied in disaster movie. Oh, of course, I'm sure it is. What does he do? Oh no, you know, it, you know, it's like those later ones where it's just like literally like. It's James Bond, but he's not in a James Bond movie. Yeah, like it's literally like, and then like a cow falls on him or <laughs> <Yeah>. something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And you know, and then, then the end at the end, exact. and then I, I'm sure this is in the, the scene, but like at the end, he like comes back like to do the thing, but then the rabid chipmunks, the Elvin and the chipmunks, right. rabid chipmunks, where I know are in that movie, like attack him, and that's like the last gag of the movie. Like you know, that's something that, if not in the movie, was definitely pitched. I just.
2: That movie, this is the last thing I'll say about this. I just remember seeing trailers for that movie and I legitimately remember seeing the same joke on the same set in every joke of the movie. And it was always like, it's Iron Man. And then he gets like hit in the nuts with like a stop sign that's flying through the air. And it's like, Oh my god, it's Kung Fu Panda and then a cow falls on
0: him. I just remember for disaster movies specifically, there was like the radio commercials. Right. And it was always like it was like Miley Cyrus getting killed and then the Alvin and the chipmunks going rabid. Right. That was like what I remember. But but okay, but but seriously though,
2: could you do a James Bond movie where it is like he's he's paired up against a natural disaster. Yeah, it would have to like be... Like, essentially, like, almost a villain film.
0: I mean, no. It, like, for a Bond movie, you'd have to have it be, like, a man-made thing. Right. Where it's, like... Some, like a geostorm? Like a geostorm. <laughs> but I also feel that, like, going against a natural disaster is a little bit more Fast and Furious. Mm-hmm. Like, if, like, the next Hobbs and Shaw movie was, like that mysterious like computer system like cause a natural disaster and, right like, the rock had like the punch a tornado like right you know that could happen
2: yeah or like hold the like as i always said san andreas should have ended with him like holding the the, the earth together the earth together like the the tectonic plates like the san andreas fault together
0: like it, this day and age
2: it should have just like been
0: that. if you just redid the core but with the rock
2: yeah that would work. And Daniel Craig. Yes. <laughs> Not even James Bond. No. Daniel Craig. But could you set, like, an espionage tale, and he's like, Bond, you have to go in and extract, like, this, like, CIA agent on a island that's about to explode.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, again, you know, th- even that, like, is just, like, you need to like that feels a little bit more mission impossible even then or yeah. it just feels like you have to like it, it, it feels, your mission should you choose to accept it it feels it.
2: more like a setup for like like let's say like he has to like do a mission in like like some sort of tropical Area, but then it's like the worst storm.
0: Right, it's not because all the Bond movies have like uh, like the gorgeous beaches and the gorgeous right. girls and, and like, like everything like, that like you love about going to those locations. And
2: then he's like stuck there on the island with like um Spectre agents. Yeah, like it's like you can't leave. And then he's like, we're gonna need to survive on this island. But in like a more James Bond way, that would actually be cool because that's actually one of the better parts of like, Skyfall that holds up is the whole, like, when they go to the house. Right. And then they're like, we're gonna make our stand here. Mm -hmm. Like, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. And then he would just be jerry-rigging, like, like, gadgets out of, like, uh Twigs. Yeah, twigs and coconuts. Like, the professor from, Mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, Gilligan's Island. (laughs) That would, that (laughs) would, that would be funny. (laughs) And then, and then, obviously, like, Godzilla's already, like, natural disasters yeah. and, and I mean not like, you know, critically. Some of them are, but I'm just saying <laughs> right. metaphorically.
0: Right. But it's like we've seen Godzilla treated like like again, Shin Godzilla basically does treat him as like a natural disaster. Yeah, like, like in the Shin response. Godzilla
2: twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, I think you would have to do it's like
0: but yeah, you're right.
2: I we're never gonna get like like a villain is gonna make a Geostorm. In a, in a Bond no. movie ever again, are we?
0: Well, I mean, this has never happened before.
2: Yeah, but, like, I, was it, I, but, like, oh, well, I guess, like, what's it, like, in, it just seems like when you have scientists they I mean, are, it's like, now, we're I, literally going to, like, create, like, like a, a like a virus or something that, like, because that's, uh, what's it called, um, uh, the, the, ugh, why am I thinking, why am I, uh. Spaceballs, baseball Space- oh Moonraker, Moonraker. I <laughs> couldn't remember the name. Moonraker. What, what what was his plan? It was was it going to be like a virus? Uh, or oh was- yeah, yeah. So,
0: no, He was going to basically he he created yeah he created like a virus that was going to kill all the people on Earth, but none of the plants and animals. Right, right. Now I do got to say though, Will, how is that
2: any more ridiculous than like I will a say storm?
0: Th- yeah. Well, we we have had a plot in this series of episodes about. Scientists creating natural disasters all around the world. It was just in our man Flint. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those sexist scientists. That's true. That's, that's what true. they were doing. And in Flash Gordon. And in Flash Gordon. Yeah, that was, that's yeah, what he was
2: doing. Here's the way that they would do it, is that it would definitely be a scientist, and he would have like an earthquake machine. Yeah. It would have to be something like, we've placed seismic charges all around the equator, and Will like for yeah. every day that you don't pay me our the the ransom and like give us the launch codes will like ignite a a fault line or yeah. something like yeah. that.
0: that's how you. And then you a... do like one, like you like you get like one. Yeah. where they like like here's a demonstration, but right. yeah, that also that just reminds me of G.I. Joe I retaliation. Would, I was gonna say that. <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> say when that. London gets goddamn obliterated. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those like.
2: For anybody who's seen G.I. Joe Retaliation, there's a villain when Cobra does the, here's a test of our, a taste of our power. It's literally, it's basically they're dropping missiles that don't explode, but they essentially just destroy the entire foundation
0: of the earth. like like an earthquake type of deal. Yeah. Like kind of an earthquake scenario. But we
2: kid you not that the way it destroys London is that it's un-like- there's no rebuilding. Yeah, the way the the amount is, everybody's dead. For for all this talk about how movies like like kind of have been reveling in you know destruction and like you you know like there's kind of like that criticism with like a lot of blockbusters that there's a lot of just like a lot of people feel like there's like careless just blowing up stuff even if heroics are going on to this day. That movie stands out as the worst. Right. Like, because there's nothing. Because, like, the most you get in other movies, it's like, oh, it's like two, three buildings fell down and the rest is on fire. The city is gone. The continent has been completely obliterated.
0: Right. It's just like an entire cult. Like, that's the thing, too. It's literally like there's no recovering any part of that culture. Like, the entirety of British civilization is just. It's gone, right? It's right. it's decimated. Because what's
2: the the biggest spectacle that a Bond movie has gotten is maybe Goldeneye?
0: in terms of destruction. Yeah, yeah.
2: Like that's because the, the implication is like that it's like a giant space laser. Mm-hmm. But like, and that's like as mo- that's the most outlandish. I feel like as a guy. well, no. And then there was like, the, of course, there was. Uh, Die Another Day, which yes. also had a mm-hmm. space laser. Yeah,
0: space lasers tend to be the big one. Yeah. I would say that, yeah, I guess, because it's like they've never really I mean, Bond has never really been about like, big destruction. No. Like, they're definitely, you know, and uh, one of these deep dives at one point will be about like, the stunt work and the big action sequences of all these movies, because that's definitely been an important part of it. But the thing is about the Bond movies is that it's always just been kind of more so the chase and the gunplay and and you know that sort of thing right like even like you know the bigger ba- even like the bigger battles that we see in like like the later lewis gilbert films like you know the big tanker is by love me and the space stuff in moonraker is more like contained to you know just the just the big tanker and and the um you know the space station in outer space it's not really like oh bond is like going around this big city and then like stopping this it's usually like Really is like it's contained to like layers or or smaller areas of, of 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 battle more so than these big huge like sequences.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so anyway, uh, that was wh- fun. What what do we want to talk about? All right, today? so
0: um, our actual deep dive that was really fun though. Um, just kind of, you know, going around around talking about random things. Uh, it was a great time, but uh,
2: it was kind of inspired. Hey, by- leave that review on the. Uh- on the podcast
0: on going Apple. Yeah. Give that as a review. By reviewing myself? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, just jerk myself off there. <laughs> <trying>.
2: <laughs> Wait, you want me to jerk yourself off? Well, that's,
0: I don't know. That's whatever. <laughs> We're open minded here at the bottom of the podcast. Well, it was kind of inspired by uh, our brief discussion on uh, DLD De Laurentiis uh, this past episode on Flash Gordon. thought it would be a uh, interesting discussion to talk about the legacy of the Bond producers, the Broccoli family, and also Harry Saltzman, whose contributions should not be uh, um, diminished mm-hmm. as well. Um, because I think it's sometimes, you know, uh, when you just in general talk about producers – there's kind of a sense of like, you know, there's there's a whole lot of like perceptions about producers, you know. I think there's the production, the perception that like, oh, like the producer is just meddling with the creative process a lot of times, and you know. But I do think that there is this whole legacy, not just within Bond, but within the cinema history of these of these big time producers, these big larger than life producers that in the classic like Roger Corman, Dino De Laurentiis, Cubby Broccoli style and. Something that you see uh, you know, occasionally in, in a modern era, occasionally you have someone like a a Jerry Bruckheimer or a Kevin Feige who kind of are more out there in terms of their name, in terms of their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the producer is a very important part of the film production and Cubby and Saltzman and then now Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson – are major, major parts of what makes Bond, Bond. And so kind of exploring more of their side of things, their contributions, and kind of their legacy, um, and just the general role of that in, in production, I thought would be a little bit of an interesting kind of discussion. And it's a little bit something different.
2: Well, I, I think that the biggest thing for a lot of people, definitely, especially if you don't work in, 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 the, in the line of work, is that i i don't really think a lot of people would know what a producer actually right, is yeah. or does like i think that that perception of like oh the the producer coming in and meddling and, and meddling is more so like just the vague like the studio or like you know right. the, yeah. the, like the like hollywood or or sometimes like you know eps which, which stands for executive producer um but normally especially traditionally as we've seen like you know the producers of the film that definitely The thing that gets thrown around the most about producers is that you know if directors are the creative people then the producers are the money people right um and to kind of like just maybe kind of iron this out for people who don't know as much that would be a very crude way of of putting it but not necessarily the wrong starting point uh from from starting out I think most of the time that um, producers do take on a a little bit more creative responsibilities than some give credit for at times. Um, But there's also some producers that are are very hands-off. But um, to kind of distill it into like the simplest version possible. Yeah. Because with all of these, I mean, really like once you get past like the director... It, these these things do become a little bit more nebulous the more you go. Like once you go to producers and then you go to co-producers and then you go to executive producers, then the, then it just yeah. the lines just starts blurring and blurring and blurring. And like,
0: that's like it's been a, a discussion with the industry for for a yeah. while too. I mean, you could literally be like somebody
2: who like showed that brought this script from this director to or this screenwriter to this director in this in the studio system and now you get a executive producer credit on it. Like it's like you literally
0: it's so that's Or it's like you'll see like an actor get the executive producer because he was like, you know Yeah like like,
2: help to like get it made or something like that.
0: So like in in general,
2: like I, I I would say that, you know, the producer definitely while the director takes on the role of, like, you know, the actual uh, head-on creativity of the film, the producer is the person who essentially makes sure that, you know, everything is getting made. Right, <laughs> yeah. That, well, like...
0: yeah, in terms of an example on our podcast, though, I, I go back to our Never Say Never Again episode where we talk about, you know, Jack Swartzman, kind of the, the, the entertainment lawyer turned producer who helped, you know, get rid of all the legal tangle-ups and get that movie made – but then when you hear the stories about how just his inexperience as a producer kind of led to the issues on you know the film because you know he you know producers are the ones that yeah they have the financial stuff but they're kind of helping deal with all the like kind of setting up you know helping to set up the deals to you know where to shoot and like oh we you know hey we need the budget to get these five trucks for this scene and we need them here at this day and then the producer is like you know kind of delegating that but he's still kind of in control of that and with it never say never again it's just an example of just you know when things don't show up when the trucks don't get there or you know there was kind of a miscommunication it's all kind of going back to the producer is kind of really kind of the one setting that up and then when he's not you know when it's it always that movie when he's not kind of involved with that then you kind of you you have a you know, just it's not a weld oiled machine anymore. You know, mm-hmm. then it's like other people are taking on other responsibilities. Directors, assistant directors, you know, line producers are all kind of like doing more things than they need to. And that's just strains. You know, movies are not easy to make. No. You know, and most like- of the time they're not easy to make. And so, like, the producer kind of. In theory, yes, he's providing the money, but he also is kind of funneling to make things as smooth as possible.
2: A director makes the movie; the producer uh, makes sure that the movie can get made. Yes, that's a good <laughs> way to put it. Yeah, is is, is um, essentially. And what's going to be what's interesting about this topic now too is especially that uh, that not only the history of producers in general, but like now the the the, the spotlight on right. on the producers because in a way the the title of producer has always had some sort of a spotlight you mentioned jerry Bruckheimer, which is like one of like the uh classics examples like of the like, classic modern day examples of a producer right. but now you have other examples like you have your kevin feige's now you have your um your jason blums and mm-hmm. like who are like these prime examples of i would call like superstar right producers who um, are kind of changing the game in, in in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it's like it's kind of revigorated. because like classically, like you know, back in like old Hollywood, you had like you know, MGM is not just named MGM for no reason. It's you know Metro Man and Goldweather, or it's like you know the producers of those movies. Like the Warner Brothers were the actual Warner Brothers a lot of the times you know, Walt Disney was Walt Disney studio was Walt Disney produced all those movies. And a lot of times in that early Hollywood era, it was just like, you know, the main guys at the studio were the producers and they were going around everything. Then you kind of transition it into again, the seventies, which is where more so like the sixties and seventies, which is where that kind of superstar producer kind of really starts. It's just like, you know, not really attached to a studio per se, but just like they're there to make movies and, and to put those movies out there. And like I said, like Dino De Laurentiis, which we just talked about with Flash Gordon, is one of those prime examples of just, like, a 70s, 80s producer who, Mm -hmm. like, his name is at the top of of every one of those movies, you know, De De Laurentiis production, and it's kind of very recognizable. Or Roger Corman, who, yes, he kind of made more schlockier things, but it's still, like, his name was very much attached to that, and it Mm -hmm. was a style, it was his producing style. Uh, And, I mean, the same, I mean, we were talking about him today, but... Hubby Broccoli like what's the first thing you see on all those on all those old Bond movies it's no, that's true. Albert R Broccoli presents an Ian Fleming novel you know it's a uh, you know based on Ian Fleming's James Bond but Broccoli's name and Saltzman's name were always at the front of those movies mm-hmm. and you know and again like Bruckheimer today you're sorry right Blum people like feige and mm-hmm. and stuff like that they're 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 out there especially nowadays like those are the types of producers that are really out there and making the name for for themselves
2: well what 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 makes it and i'm sure we'll step back in into the modern day um before before you know before the end of this but the, what brings it back to the bond stuff and um is and what brings it back to the bond stuff that Makes it so relevant to like what's going on in the modern day is that it was almost one of those few studios that was truly ahead of you know how we're seeing like a lot of these like studios and franchises being rung now is that it it was you know for lack of a better term a very producer driven franchise it is
0: a producer driven franchise with a with a very producer driven vision. Mm-hmm um because we we we, we've we've, that's that's a key element too right there it's because i think the thing about it is that we've talked about directors but i think in general especially like in in the cubby era and the cubby and Saltzman era you know eon was very much an insular like family environment where they would all it, it was the same people every film they always pulled from that same pool of directors you know and they would like you know you know, like once you made one film with, you know, um, you know, Lewis Gilbert, Lewis Gilbert could come back for more. Once you made one with Terrence Young, he could come back for more. Like once, you know, Richard Maybaum wrote all those movies and John Barry scored all those movies, you know, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the way that just Eon is run by its production side um, and that, you know, and uh, how Cubby and Saltzman in those initial eras viewed, their passion for this bond franchise and how it kind of evolved into, well, this is what we're doing. This is all we do. And and when we go, when you go back to all of our, you know, older bond episodes, what's the first thing we talked about? It's like, well, Cubby is deciding what the next movie is. Mm -hmm. It's not like they go to the director, like, Oh, which of these bond movies do you want to make? They're basically deciding, all right, well, the next bond movie we're doing is man with the golden gun. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, we have this idea for it and we can shoot in this location. Okay. Guy Hamilton, you're going to come back. Okay. That's, that's it. We're, we're on, we're on a roll. And it's very much like Cubby and Saltzman were very much the creative force on these movies as much as anybody else who was working on these movies. Yes. All those directors definitely brought their style and added to it as we've talked about, you know, Maybaum and Tom Mankiewicz and all these other writers that came in, you know, brought that, action and that dialogue and I mean the whole film production is a whole film production everybody brings their their vision and and their style but it really is at the end of the day Cubby and Saltzman and today Barbara and Michael who are making these decisions and 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 pushing the Bond franchise forward and you know it's very much was Cubby's idea that when he saw these series of books is like well these these could easily be a whole series of movies which is not what a lot of people saw mm-hmm. at that time, um, because inf- again, infamously, uh, Cubby's old production partner, um, uh, Irvin Allen, when he when Cubby brought up the idea of hey, let's do these Bond, you know, these Bond movies sound interesting, and then Allen was like, well, these what like doing multiple of these movies, like these these books aren't even worth like a television deal, like mm-hmm. what do you want you want from these, and it's just like Cubby just had the insight that like. Well, if we do one, we can do two. And if we do two, we can do three. And we're off and running there. We have a bunch of source material to work with. And and Saltzman very much was the same way because Saltzman is the one who actually had the rights. And Saltzman saw it as his real opportunity to break into the industry because in terms of them, um, like Cubby was very much had a le- lengthier history within the industry at that time in the sense that. You know, like he had done a, like he was like a, like a casket maker at one point. Like he had done a lot of odd jobs, but he kind of was interested in film. And he just happened to have his like first role, uh, his first work was just like helping out on a, on a Howard Hughes movie. And Howard Hughes kind of took him under his wing and, and that sort of thing. And it's just, they built that friendship. And Howard Hughes, you know, you know, used his connections to help, you know, Cubby kind of make his way up. And then eventually Cubby, like a lot of um, producers after the war, after World War II, um, Britain wanted to kind of boost their economy again so they had this deal where it's like if you know the British government will like kind of pay a little bit extra money for your producers and studios to come over and make british films British filmmakers and a lot of studios were taking deals at that time to do that like and from from my end I know like Walt Disney had all those f- uh, frozen funds in europe and decided to kind of use those funds to start his live action division but Cubby was very much like okay, I'm going to move from New York to London and, and kind of focus in on these British films to really hone my craft as a producer. And that's where he discovered Bond and it kind of was off to the races from there. Whereas Saltzman was very much someone who was desperately trying to kind of find his, his angle into the industry. Like he had done a couple of small films, he had produced some plays in Canada and, um, you know, when he, when he also had to see like these Bond rights, these popular books. Hey, like maybe I can do something with these... And then when Salzman and Broccoli got together, you know, it was a thing where Cubby offered to buy the books, and Saltzman said no. But we have a similar vision here. You have the experience, mm-hmm. I have, you know, just a business acumen, and I, I have this kind of also this vision. But I can help with that financial side of things. Why don't we team up? And it was like a perfect pairing. It's 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 like a, as as somebody who's uh, like.
2: Um, try to go on a lot of creative endeavors. It it is one of the biggest things that I always pray for is just a friend to fall in my lap who just wants to do the business stuff. (laughs) It's like, because it's it's like, once you have somebody who wants to do it, it's great. I think I've
0: said, like, it's not that Saltzman didn't want to do the creative stuff. I think Saltzman also had a creative mindset as a producer. Oh, sure. And in some ways, Saltzman was a little bit more ambitious uh, than, than Cubby Broccoli was. But Saltzman just had a little bit more of that insight of just, like, even though he hadn't broken into the industry, he kind of offered to take that, you know, making the deals and and the financial side of things so that, you know, they could make this work. And despite the fact that that, you know, relationship deteriorated partially because of Saltzman's ambitions later in his career and the kind of financial failures he he, um, faced... It was a very fruitful partnership because obviously the 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 two of them both saw the same thing. They both had this vision to drive. You know, they they started Eon Productions together and the Danchik LLC company to kind of the holding company for the actual rights of the movies. But they started this whole endeavor together with that idea that we're going to do many of these. We're going to do as many of these as we can. Mm-hmm. And. You know, and it was like I said, a, a vision in some ways ahead of its time mm-hmm. in the way that they 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 really singularly drove that franchise and made it what it was. Yeah, I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I was I was I was thinking if I had any anything really, uh, really to add about that. I mean, it's just funny. It's just my my mind is just racing just thinking about just just uh, how they fit into this like this pantheon right. of, of producers and because. It- I think going back to what you earlier said, kind of like when you describe both of these, these characters is that that is a key that definitely puts them into a certain camp. I don't know if it makes them quite unique because I think that one of the things that I'll probably do is probably dis- dissect what I think like the different kind of categories of producers usually hear about are, but they definitely fit in that camp of like, you know, they are producerial to the point of like, you know, they're a vision, you know, there's a yeah. vision because well, you know, I'll just get, I'll, I'll get into to it right now. I, I think sometimes when you think of producers, there's some kind of general categories that you can think of. One, you can think of like the big studio producer that even in the most positive of light is very much like, you know, not necessarily all about the dollars, but like, how do we make this like the best m- version movie of itself, but more from like, kind of like that, like more clinical right. way. Like well,
0: what's how, what's the ma- way you can maximize this movie to make the maximum amount of profit. Yeah. Like, or, like, or just like, like, like the maximum amount of appeal, like yeah. all that sort of like I, appeal,
2: I think would gen- generally yeah. be the best thing. Like what, like what are, what are some things we could do? And you know, there would be, you know, some of the examples of like uh, producers, I would say that have trad- traditionally famously been like that um are currently in jail right now uh uh, that's very timely (laughs) because the stuff that's just coming out about i know that's why i said
0: that i mean read the news folks that's all i'll say about listen just jennifer aniston i'm glad you're
2: alive (laughs) um so but you do have that like that's that's uh definitely a category of like the more like studio like it's like let's make the let's make the best like uh most successful yes motion picture we can possibly possibly make Mm -hmm. um and then you have the um uh but then you have like people like what we're talking about today where it's like you know they're not they they don't necessarily have like a big studio behind them um well actually let me get this one out of the way then you have the producers who just kind of will dedicate to just making whatever movie that th- the they want to make. Yeah. Like It's interesting because I think recently we've seen Warner Brothers go through this whole ordeal with the, uh, the DC, with the DC um, Extended Universe and, and all of their films because I think that it was a studio, especially after writing off the coattails of a lot of the Chris Nolan films, I think that there was a general sense that You know, they were used to just, like, producing whatever movie, like, the director wanted to make. And it's kind of like a probably would keep hands off, make sure, like, the ship ran as much as possible. And then they tried to, like, do, like, this weird overcorrecting thing by, like, you know, uh, micromanaging, like, a universe. And they were in over their head. And, like, these are the vibes and, like, kind of, like, Mm -hmm. chatter that we got from them. But I think when you look at, like, people like, you know, Nolan's producers, it's a lot of, like... like um. Uh, what is it? The 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 Rick McCallums of uh from like from Star Lucas and Star Wars days, just like a lot of like director's vision. Let's just put all the ducks in a row so we can just make right. Like that.
0: what what you need, what you need obviously we'll 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 set up like was we'll it like we'll set up a budget, we'll set up like a certain amount of like guidelines. But at the end of the day, what you need, just let us know. We'll try to make it work for you. Mm-hmm. That type of producer and um and that definitely happens when you ha-
2: are on that studio level uh when you just have like a big system of all these people who do kind of just want to do that they just want to make movies it's and you know you kind of get in trouble when it's like you know you don't have like a section where these producers are passionate about making like whether it be blockbuster films or horror films or like these kind of like more genre temples they just want to make the like these films and they want to stay out of it now that kind of transitions to us into like the Feige's, the Blum's and the Broccoli's and like and
1: mm-hmm.
2: where these are the types of producers where big or small studio or not. And now I think it's become more of like they're in, in, uh, in line with a studio uh, is that these people who do have more of a creative influence yeah. on, on the picture and definitely, uh, take just as much like I would argue probably just as much creative input and ownership than that like the screenwriter or the director does right
0: and I think it's also like that type of producer is also very much the producer that's out there that's yes you know like even like when you look at you know obviously like figies and, and Blum are definitely like the type that are, are doing like the interviews and, and like even like cubby um if you look at like a lot of those old, Bond, like special features on on the DVDs and Blu-rays, like there's many like examples of him giving interviews and talking about like, well, this is why we're making Moonraker and like having an interview about that or like, you know, being interviewed about, hey, what was the process of choosing Timothy Dalton for the next Bond? Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that out there. And then, you know, like you have that and like Feige and Blum. And even again, like I said, those traditionally big producers like De Laurentiis and and Corman, they were also kind of just at the forefront of their movies and their Mm -hmm. name was always at the front and you knew that name. And, and Bruckheimer, in it, to an extent, too. I mean, Bruckheimer is kind of that big example where it's like, okay, Bruckheimer, producer. Like, you know, Bruckheimer is the type of guy where my mom and my dad think, like, he directed Pirates of the Caribbean. Right, right, right. But right. it's like... But it's just because like his style is so distinct. Like he has like the you know you know he's you're gonna have these big action sequences and and crazy things going on and a certain like level of humor in those in those in Jerry Bruckheimer movie. You know what a like Jerry Bruckheimer
2: bro- like these broad appeal big explosions big, uh, set piece driven like, films. You
0: know what a it's one of those things like you know what a Jerry Bruckheimer movie is. Yes, and mm-hmm. the reason that the same thing you kind of know what like a Bond movie is because. Broccoli and Salzman set that vision right. and, and kind of even with the ebbs and flows and the changing bonds and the styles, there's always still like thing like this is what makes a Bond movie a Bond movie. And that's what kind of they they bring out there and they, they keep that consistency throughout their part of the history.
2: Yeah, I mean that and I think that's another key factor in terms of when you think about the uh, creative route that the films have gone is that that level of. And and for better or for worse, and maybe you have the criticism, maybe you don't. If like you know, if you know, part of the reason I think maybe you people may argue that a franchise in general that is producer driven, because one of the things I was gonna say is that it's very much akin to especially when it comes to these franchises to a showrunner on mm-hmm. a television show Yes. where the showrunner on TV for those of you who don't know many of you listening to this podcast probably know this so excuse this is for those who've the the, the not as initiated is that the TV is definitely more of a writer and producer driven medium it just mm-hmm. is um you know directors come in they direct an episode maybe they direct a few episodes and they come in but, yeah, very few examples
0: yeah. of like a director, like being like a, uh, like a real force of the show. Yeah.
2: It, it, it's generally speaking, like, and then I, I can speak personally, given just my field of work is that the director actually spends way less time even in, involved in the, in the post of, of, a, of a show. It, it's much more the writers and the producers are uh, the driving creative force that take it really from the, from the cut to the, to, to the screen. Um, so it's very similar in terms of, like, with with producers like this. So one of the things is that that creative voice, I would say a good portion of it, is coming from the people who are essentially running the franchise. And it's not necessarily a, like, and that's where I think that it's interesting because I think that's where the correlation, especially recently with a lot of franchise franchises, is that people see the equated to, like, the studio meddling thing where it's really just like well the creative voices behind it have been the same people yeah and you know sometimes that works out because it would sometimes you have those creative voices knowing when they have to change it up and with the bond franchise i think we have seen uh the attempts to do that, like I, we see that they know, like, all right, now it's time to like go in a slightly different direction, and now it's time to kind of like hit the reset button a little bit. But you know, we're still we're not going to go too far right. off the range because we're still going to make the type of movie yeah. that we want to make.
0: I mean, like you know, it's again, it is you're very much right that you know, yeah, you we the whole you know, it's um like when you look at that history of the Bond franchise, like. You can kind of tell sometimes, like, the difference between, like, you know, the best Connery, the best Moore, the best Dalton, the best Brosnan. Like, they're all very kind of different, but all uniquely similar, if that makes sense. It's just, like, they all share so much of that DNA, so much of that vision that those producers are driving, yet there is still room for updating with the times, updating with, you know, the, the current actor in the role, and the people that you do have at the studio at that time, you know, and the director. And it's like, it's still part of that big melting pot that makes a movie a movie. But the producers, especially with Bond, where it is this kind of family-owned franchise, which is very unique in and of itself, but, uh, you know, it's like that whole vision throughout that entire 50-year, 60-year history approaching of, of the film franchise is just very much like, you know, it's 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 just makes what makes bond bond there's no way to put it. it it is
2: interesting to think about the producer like these type of producers uh in this role and like really like um and it's interesting because the only example that we've given out of this is really different is jason blum but that's just because his uh <clears throat> his mantra of making films is just very much more on like He's like the financial type of producer, but yeah. in a good way because yeah. he's just kind of made this whole model that well, has I mean, made his studio yeah, like, and his like, name very successful. Like the a
0: Blumhouse like studio. It's like, you know, they they're produce. You know, they're only producing horror films, but you know, Jason Blum is someone who very much has a very wide range of of types of horror films and types of movies mm-hmm. that he's put out there, and and he's been very very successful and really does know how to I I think Blum very much is someone who definitely kind of knows how to maximize creativity and how to maximize that financial aspect because especially cuz he's on a horror movie which generally do have like somewhat lower budgets most mm-hmm. of the time but also he he just kind of it just seems like he knows how to hit that well and
2: for those of you who don't know Jason Blum of Blumhouse the whole uh mission statement of them is that I believe the number is they never go above $10 million for a movie Mm -hmm. like, or they keep their budgets like, like very low. Right. Um, and they're pretty strict about that. And I think like every now and then they'll go outside of their comfort zone and do like a, like a glass or something like that, which, which costs a little bit more money, but it ultimately has created a, uh, you know, an environment where it's like most of their movies are po- poised for success yeah. because, like, the budgets are so low. And you know what's really funny about Jason Blum? There are a lot of bad Blumhouse movies. right?
0: <laughs> but he also – he's very much in that Corman De Laurentiis realm, though, where he produces a lot because of the right. lower budgets. So, that's a good
2: exa- – that's 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 so true.
0: Well, because, like, again, like – like, but I also feel like whereas, like, Laurentis just got bogged down by his failures – I think like Blum has been able to really spin his successes. Oh, because the successes have been rarely, very, very good, very good, and even those bad movies, they still tend to make money because the budgets are so. How low. many How
2: many Purge movies are we on? Right. he's literally like created new franchises. But it's also, you know, and... but
0: it's also like he he helps. You know, he helped launch like Jordan Peele's stuff. Yeah. too. Oh and, yeah. No. Yeah. And, and
2: and but it, but it's interesting how the producers of this ilk, like if you look at like your favorite director where you kind of want your favorite director to kind of, like, do the same thing in a way. Like, you kind of want them to always have their director-type things. Like, yeah. it may be, like, a different movie, but you always want, like, a Tarantino movie to feel like a Tarantino right. movie. You always want an Edgar Wright movie to feel – you like always want him to do his Edgar Wright things. There's a little bit of Wright that,
0: like, like I'll, I'll t- I'll tour voice right. that you
2: want that It is funny how that's not extended to a producer. No. It, it, it is – and I and here's not me trying to like defend producers and you know I, I'm I'm very uh you know my my opinion on it can go either way depending on the situation but it is interesting that where the reason like you know people may give that criticism to a producer run franchise is like but the because it's the producer who is the creative voice behind mm-hmm. it in, in some ways yeah uh, so it's just interesting how that doesn't uh, get applied uh, to yeah them. But or I at did... least that that producers. Like you know, we've talked about Feige, and you and I have been like you know we are on the train of like we think that his producerial voice, uh, you know we we think very highly of it. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that that's an example where you know I I think that you know producers get a bad rap sometimes. They do. I mean, they there's do. some terrible ones, and those people are in jail. Uh, hopefully. Not uh, wrong. here's uh. Here is the question I have for you just to kind of like look at all of these examples. What is the thing that you think separates our bond producers from a lot of these examples or just producers in general?
0: I was actually going to go into this. I think one of the main things that really shifts to me, like just in terms of what I know, and I'm sure like these other companies are very much, you know, in that realm, but especially with with Cubby and Saltzman specifically, I think this has translated uh, a little bit into the Michael and Broccoli produced films. Just a sense of like Eon as like the family. And I feel like the way that Cubby especially ran it, because I always think about how Cubby had to really step up after Saltzman, you know, Saltzman sold his stuff off after his financial failures and Cubby was by himself and You know, it's like the stories of Spy Who Loved Me where Cubby really, really stepped up and and did everything. And again, when the crew wasn't doing well in Egypt, like he came to cook them like a spaghetti dinner. And like he was the one on set and he was always like, you know, bringing that same the same people in and creating that kind of eon family. You know, and it was something where it's like, okay, well, where these this editor has been doing great for us. Um, You know, let's give him a chance to direct like then he did that twice with Peter, Peter Hunt. Um, our Magic Secret Service and with John Glenn where he was directing five movies in a row and, and that was off of the great work they had done for Eon and stuff like that. I, I think that just the uniqueness of like the uniqueness of Eon being a family business and Cubby running it like a family business. Mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of really separates the style of Cubby Broccoli and, and Saltzman especially in those early days where it very much in some ways and sometimes it did feel like Eon was like one of those, like it was like a mom and pop operation making mm-hmm. these big movies because also again, those first bond movies, those early bond movies did not have large budgets. You know, Dr. No was a million and, and from Russia with love was two million. And it was really like, not like, you know, they really didn't get into huge budgets until spike who loved me and moonraker, like where, you know, they started to really up themselves on the special effects stuff for a long time. It really felt like very much, it very, it felt it, it you know, when I kind of compare it again, just my knowledge base, like the way that Eon's run is very much similar to like the early Disney Studio, mm-hmm. because the Disney Studio really up until the '80s was a small-time studio. It was essentially an independent studio doing big things, and Eon sometimes feels that way too. That it very much was like they have a kind of an independent mindset, but th- instead of they're just doing one thing, they're you know, and, and eventually, like even the Disney Studio, even in its smaller era, got bigger. Like you know, they did. They were doing just animation for a long time, and then and then they went to do the theme parks, and they went to do all the live action stuff, and they start, you know, even right as Walt died, they were kind of experimenting even more with doing like stop motion and stuff like that. They were really kind of playing with what type of movies they made. But Eon, I think what also makes it unique is that again, barring a very few examples, Eon is just making one movie. You know, excuse me. Yeah, that's true. And I it's mean- like because like even like Feige, it's like you know my marvel's kind of similar but it's still kind of under the whole disney umbrella and there's all again all the stuff and now it's like we're, we're going to start getting marvel stuff in the theme parks and now there's like the tv show stuff and and, and it's also sort
2: of- different because like you know as we have kind of like that that's a franchise of franchises where yeah. it's like you know each movie is designed to be like you know you have a captain america and then you have like your guardians of the galaxy like the name it, it, it's similar to like you know if you ran pixar where there may be like that thematic kind of like overhead but it's like each of the movie is like a, it's different right, thing. Its own thing but that is what's different about the Franchise, cuz this is strictly like one family right. that's kind of been like you know passed right. down through legacy and it's just one franchise. Yeah, and
0: I and I think it's also very distinctly when I was kind of doing a little bit more research on on Cubby and the Broccoli family. I think what's very distinctive is like because again, like the whole thing about Saltzman and Saltzman, again has a very much a contribution, but he always has his had his eye on other things. He, you know, he was like definitely still helping out with the financial stuff and still contributing. You know, still ordering millions of ele- elephant shoes in that one movie. <laughs> um, but he was, you know, like I said, like I think I, I mentioned this in the, in the Man with the Golden Gump episode, But he like he was investing in like Italian film companies, and he he was trying to like you know um, do like this like kind of Greek style musical set in outer space, and like he was kind of always doing other stuff. Whereas Broccoli. As soon as, you know, and Broccoli had a, had a lengthy career prior to the Bond movies. You know, he did a lot of war movies in the earlier 50s and stuff like that, especially post-war when that was kind of a big thing. But once he got into Bond, it just, th- that just became the love of his life. And that's but became everything he did. And, you know, and Eon, you know, had that one Bob Hope movie that they did and then it didn't do successful. And then, you know, Cubby also went off to do Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as kind of a favorite United Artists. But outside of those, like, his whole life revolved around Bond. Even when they had these legal tangle-ups and they had these little breaks, he was always thinking about, well, when we get back to it, what's our next Bond thing? You know, it was never a consideration that we start doing other stuff again. It was always about Bond. And even, like, for for when, Bra- when Barbara and Michael take over, up until very recently, it was the same way. Now, in the recent years, Eon has started to produce, you know, uh, help produce other films. You know, we had uh, the one movie that came out this year, forgot the name. The
2: oh, oh, uh, is it the Blind Tapes or, or something like that? Is no, the, it, wait, which one? I thought it was that was like the Blake Lively. Yeah, movie. it's not the
0: name of it though.
2: Well, I know that's not the name, but yeah. it's just
0: like but something like that. It was like a weird title, but it was like kind of another spy espionage mm-hmm. movie. But like they've started to kind of get back a little Here, bit oh, into it, it. I got it. No, you can
2: keep talking. Um. Uh, but I just oh, think, now it's gonna be a race. It's gonna be a
0: race. So he uh, finds
2: it first. I'm gonna get it. Damn it it's not loading
0: the rhythm section damn it and also they also produced uh, film stars don't die in liverpool which was a a little bit of a uh, different type of movie for them like a like a drama actual drama mm. um, but what really is it's like again it's just that that real passion for just a singular thing and just and you know and creating that relationship with the fleming estate that they would basically have these rights in you know forever um, essentially and it, it really again what's kind of unique is that Really, yes, like, eventually, like, United Artists and MGM could kind of stake in it because of, you know, Saltzman deals and stuff like that. But sure. essentially, it is still very much like the Broccoli's own those rights, and it's always going to be them making these movies. Well, that's what – and, I mean, it it stands – it actually
2: brings up, I think, a, a very interesting thing. I th- The first time I had noticed how interesting the circumstances behind the producerial rights and ownership of it was – was the whole deal of like where were the bond distribution rights gonna go uh because it used to be Sony right, right? so you know
0: it's like you know because MGM is still kind of the studio like it's you know the whole it's still like MGM but like who owns MGM has like been always like a crazy thing right but it was for like the basically for the Craig era up until no time to die all those films were Sony because it was like you know Um, they, you know, MGM was kind of bought by Sony, uh, in, you know, right when Casino Royale was being produced. So like Casino Royale, Quantum, Skyfall, Spectre, all over Sony. Where's, where's MGM now? But that's the thing. It's like MGM is still kind of this nebulous space because the, like, <laughs> well, the thing is like MGM, it's like what MGM is, it's this whole kind of thing because it's like MGM is like has been bought by so many different companies. Yeah, but who's, but, sorry, go ahead. I just like, I, like who's distributing the movie though? Uh, The new, the No Time to Die is being distributed by Universal. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, it,
2: so it's Universal and
0: MGM. Yes, MG, Universal and MGM. Because, like, you know, like, it's like MGM is kind of like – MGM is kind of this weird state because there's, like, you know, because there's all these rumors now that MGM might be purchased by Apple or they may be – I remember that, yeah. Um, that's still kind of a rumor, but it's like – but even, like, when the bond rights were up, it's like it was always like, like okay, MGM and the broccolis, where are they going to go?
2: That's what, what the key was. So when all this was going on, it was the first time, like, when one of these – was happening right where i heard the whole like well what do the broccolis want to do and like you know it's like you know where it's like you know it's mgm and the broccoli like the fact that the broccolis have a say at all yeah or or that they were like in the chatter with like where they go it wasn't necessarily like it wasn't just like where is the where is James Bond gonna go? It's like where are they gonna go? Like, yeah. and it, it
0: was just like the first time right. ever I noticed that as like yeah. So it's with the universal, the but there was like because again that was at that time where it's like, uh, you know, every studio was in play for that, and it was like the Broccoli's had their pick, like you know, there was like, you know, Universal, Fox. Oh, I'm sure people um, were scrambling for that one. Amazon Studios was in the running. Apple was in the like just like the names that were coming up even. There was even that brief moment where like, you know, Disney considered like, you know, doing it with under like kind of just that subsidiary because, you know, they were buying everything at the time and still, still do. Um, But it's just like, again, it's just like the, the, the broccolis are the ones that own it. And, you know, it's kind of like when, when Cubby passed, he officially passed it on to his children, his stepson, Michael G. Wilson and his daughter, Barbara. Mm -hmm. And, and they also, again, it's kind of that, that family business thing where both of them started off kind of somewhat smaller roles within eon itself because michael was very much like a contributing like you know just kind of a uh you know he got a job at eon and then he started to run man with the golden gun uh started to help out with some of the script stuff became like one of the help one of the main creative forces on the movie and then kind of graduates to producer and then barbara starts off as a publicist um, for the studio in the later Moore era, becomes an assistant director during, you know, those last two um, uh, Moore movies, uh, and then eventually gets groomed to be a producer during the Dalton era. So it's just like they also kind of, you know, started off kind of, you know, here, have a little, you know, here I'll get you a little job at Eon, work their way up through the family business. And it's just kind of, again, that family feeling of, you know, it's always the same people coming back. It's always the same editors and the same writers and the same, you know, producers and 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 you know the same pool of directors. Especially in, in Cubby's era. Um, now, I guess one thing you could say is that Barbara and Michael, once they officially take over, kind of with, with Goldeneye and onward, they kind of take a little bit more modern approach where they do kind of switch things up for movie, give a little bit more kind of freedom to the directors Mm -hmm. um but still kind of really focus on their vision which I think is something that when you look at like for something for example like the whole production of No Time to Die not even not counting this delay of course but just you know the whole like you know Boyle coming on and then Boyle wanted to do his own script and then again it's just not kind of matching up and him kind of going on his own direction and then him leaving and then you know Uganawa coming in and kind of going back to the original script and still kind of going into like you know, through Barbara and Wilson's vision of what this last Craig movie would be, I think it's just kind of stay still. Even though they do have a little bit more freedom on that creative process for like the writers and directors, and they've been a little bit more varied in the writers and directors that they've chosen than than and Cubby and Salzman were in their era. It's still very much like. Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson—they're—they're they're the driving force behind these well, movies.
2: It, it's not uncommon to—I mean—you have to keep this in mind when it comes to producer situations like this. Is that when you come onto a movie, it is mo- mostly like, "All right, come and make this movie with us." Like yeah. we need a director, and we essentially want a partner to make this movie with, and the partner being the director. You know, it—you know—it is very much like a. A, um, it's a partnership between like the producers and the directors making the movie. Yeah. It, it, it's not necessarily a situation is here. Come on and uh, come on and do this movie that I'll just make sure gets produced. Right. It really is just like, like coming in. And I think like, you know, and I, and, I, and that's a hard thing. I think for well, a I, lot of, you know, especially film fans to wrap their head around. Yeah. I, I think in, in, and and honestly, I think we've seen examples where I think it's it's a hard thing for some directors to yeah. to wrap their head around. It could be like, you know, like, let's face it, like there's directors who probably come in and they probably do just want to do their thing, that they want to be yeah. the creative voice, and there's no shame in that. But I I don't think that that's necessarily like oh, yeah. the situation in something like well,
0: this. well, and also it's, there's different kind of producers and productions as well because you know the stuff like. What Eon is doing and like kind of like what Disney does with their live action remakes is very much like they're the ones kind of setting up the movie itself and then they're inviting, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like Disney's taking pitches for, you know, like Mulan. It's like, okay, let's develop a new Mulan and then kind of find people that are creatively interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Eon. It's like, yeah, you know, okay, we're doing the next Bond movie, it's kind of Craig's last movie. Like we're going to want to tell maybe this type of story. Let's find someone to do it. As opposed to there other producers who are like are looking at pitches and looking at scripts and then they're kind of like, okay, your pitch, your script is interesting. I'm going to put my little spin on it producing wise, but like, you know, here's the money to do right. this script. And I think there's kind of that balance too, where it's like when you're doing something like an Eon, when you're with the broccolis and they're very much like, okay, we're, we're, we're doing this Bond movie. We're setting up the parameters of doing this Bond movie. You know, it's like, and again, like, when we think about even in the Barbara Broccoli and, and Michael Z. Wilson here, a lot of their base ideas come from, uh, you know, just things in their – that's going on in their, their lives or, or, or what right. they see. They, like, you
2: don't think they're – like, they must be in, like, the editing room oh, or, no. or at least oh. their notes probably hold
0: in this that no, that, situation just as much. That's what I'm saying. That's okay, like, right, yeah. what I'm saying. That they're the ones setting it up and they're the ones still seeing the vision through. Yeah, like, I, I kind of uh, mm-hmm. Again, to use a specific, specific example – you know, um, the world is not enough was very much like Barbara Broccoli saw this report on, you know, oil post in the post USSR world. Right. And was like, Oh, we can make a movie out of that. And so, yes, they bring in like Michael Apted and they, they, they bring in like, you know, his writing team and like, yes, they, they all collaborate on this idea. And Purvis and Wade, of course they're there, you know, the, as car cubby and Saltzman had Richard Maybaum, you know, Barbara, Markley, and Michael G. Wilson have Purvis and Wade. is their like writing team they always go back to, but they they work together on this team. It's like, okay, well we want to make this bomb movie and we want to involve like a plot to like take over oil. Like in, in this way. Like, you know, these old Soviet oil pipelines and kind of the, the fight for that. So let's make a movie around that. Or you know what I mean? Or like or Michael G. Wilson on Dying the Day was like, well, we see like north korea as kind of this new russia this new threat so like what's make kind of a movie that involves around them in some fashion so there's that kind of base idea that the producers have and they the producers want to see through Mm -hmm. and if you look at uh, the die another day like making of is a very good example of this because if you look at you know um there's a lot of footage of barbara and michael very much involved with the creative process and very much like they're meeting with 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 Purvis and Wade and talking about the different aspects of the movie and them on set and them in the editing room like that documentary is very much like this is their style and this is their they're definitely have their hands in the whole thing because it's their it's their franchise it's the franchise they inherited from their father and stepfather respectively and they've taken it to their own different spin on it and their own heights and they're very much, very much taken from what what Cubby was doing, which is being involved in that entire process.
2: And then, like any stage of production, then there comes like the time when, you know, if you're a good producer, then you know when to put trust in your director. And then it's like maybe, you know, oh, yeah. maybe there's a point where it's like you bring on the director for a reason, so it's like, all right, maybe you trust their sensibilities on this one in the same way that, like, you know, some directors will put their trust in a cinematographer I, I or would, an editor. Yeah.
0: I would say that there's no better example in, in the Barbara era than Martin Campbell on gold night and, you know, casino Royale mm-hmm. and just like the great experience they had on gold night and just being like, okay, well we're doing something completely different, but we still trust you to, to see that vision through, but still put your own spot on it. And like, that's like a, yeah, I mean,
2: that that's a big show of confidence too, because it is. it's
0: like, and it, cause it's not like,
2: Hey, come back and do the same movie you did. Yeah. like, we're going in a completely different direction, well, but we still want you to do it. And it's very
0: much like you reinvented this once, now reinvented it for us again and do yeah. it again. And it very much like, I think, and, you know, and I think with, with with Mendez, I think it was the same thing, for better or for worse. That there very much was like, yes, we have our vision, we have the things we want in the movie, but Mendez, this is your show. Yeah. Um, and I, I think they ultimately, you know,
2: when you have a returning director like Mendez, I think it ultimately comes down. I think they just liked They worked like working vision. with him. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah and um, so... Mm-hmm you know they're not perfect no <laughs> i'm just, <kidding. laughs> I, I'm just being I mean it helped make dine other day of course <laughs> sir, they're, not, they're not perfect Um
0: yeah that's uh, uh that, that's but it, it'll be it'll, it'll be interesting too because i think one of the things we've also mentioned over the course of the podcast is that cubby in comparison to his daughter cubby was very much focused on his own thing like cubby was very much focused on whatever's going on in Hollywood, like, yes, he would be like, oh, okay, Star Wars came out, so let's do Moonraker now. But he was very much like, we're going to do our thing. We're going to make the movies we're going to make, you know, that sort of thing. I, I was actually listening to a couple episodes, just again, kind of getting into the Cubby mindset. And I kind of go back to Octopussy as well, where um, during that production, Cubby was not at all worried about Never Say Never Again, about this kind of Kevin McClory movie where – he was just like, oh, we're going to do our thing. We're going to make our bond movie and we're going to be fine. You know, they're that they're, they're whatever they're there. And then Wilson and, and Barbara later would be this way, but Wilson was a lot more aware. And he was like, well, they're kind of building momentum. You know, they've got this producer now or the, that's helping them kind of get the legal stuff settled And then, like, he kind of saw the writing on the wall where they're going to make a big splash. Like, maybe he didn't know exactly they were going to get Connery. But, like, they're definitely going to go all in on this because it's their one opportunity. So, we need to make something big, too. And Barbara, very much, like, post Die Another Day, was, like, very much, like, on the edge of, like, you know, seeing, like, the writing on the wall where it's like, okay, she's seeing, like, the born like the the born identity is the first one. The born identity and, and this Batman Begins script developing and just like the the, the 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 film industry was taking kind of a grittier approach and that very campy over the top nature of Die Another Day, though it was very successful, you know, was not well reviewed and there was that writing on the wall where it's like if they go in this, you know, she felt they kept going in this direction, they would be not following, she they would be you know, trying to catch up to Hollywood eventually. And she didn't want that. She wanted to be on the forefront of it. And that's where Casino Royale comes in. There's a little bit more awareness of that full what's going on right now, which I think will be interesting to see going forward if they continue to do that or if they'll continue to double down on this kind of grittier direction that they've taken. Because, you know, again, we're we're right on the cusp of another new era for Bond. And that's always been very interesting just because of, you know, these producers have had to kind of connect this franchise despite it's different actors and and different tones and different eras and different decades and so whenever there's an evolution or a change it's just always interesting to see how that reaction comes you know it's like with like cubby where it's like you know like he like same thing it was like he still wanted to make a bond movie maybe in the transition from kind of those kind of ridiculous later more movies into you know the living daylights where it's like yeah we'll still make it big and we'll still make it bond but maybe like there's a little bit more seriousness here a little bit more kind of that groundedness and and you know but it was kind of you know lessons learned over the course of the the eras where it's like okay well Lazenby was too much like Connery and that's maybe why that movie failed so let's kind of take steps like, yeah, still make him feel like kind of Bond and still make him feel a little bit kind of, but it's like, let's have more do his own thing and that sort of thing too. And so there's always that interesting of just like this consistent vision of the producers, but how it translates to when they do need to, do need to change mm-hmm. and do need to evolve. And so since we well, are it's all, it's like any creative. It's yeah. like,
2: I'm sure like, you know, if you're creative, there there's definitely going to, like I just mentioned it with directors, there's definitely going to be a creative- uh you know through line between all your work and you know some sort of uh um not similarity between the work but definitely uh creative staples yeah. uh, throughout all your work right. and but you know you as a creative i'm sure like you want to you know spice it up sometime and you know yeah. i think they have a and sense you, of when like, they want to you know kind of spruce things up or i, I think if you look
0: button. at like, director examples like we i think like stuff like you know you can take a look at kind of the tarantinos and edgar Wrights and see the evolutions of their career mm-hmm. like whereas like kind of like the the uh redoing history tarantino mm-hmm. like of later career uh, who's doing like inglorious bastards and once upon a time in hollywood yes you see all the same stuff that you do see in like pulp fiction reservoir dogs but they're still kind of different movies yeah um and like edgar Wright, like you know he his first th- you know not his first three but like you know, the Cornetto trilogy is very much like a very distinctive visual and tonal style. Right. But then when you look at something like Baby Driver... Yeah, which it's is-
2: arguably his, his the closest thing he has to a grown-up movie. Right. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> kind
0: of like more normal, but it still has like those kind of Edgar Wright's f- sure. visual flares. Mm-hmm. But it's like you see that evolution and, and that, that sort of thing. So and producing wise I definitely think so because I think like especially with the length of time that this Bond franchise has been produced and been under the Broccoli name you know it's we've we're we're again over 50 years 2022 will be 60 years of that franchise and um I think what's kind of fun is just seeing like how you know through the decades you know they've had to make bonds in this every decade and each decade is a different culture is a different kind of time period. And that's one of the things we've, we've we really wanted to talk about this podcast, how like, you know, like the nineties bras and bonds are very different than the seventies, more bonds. Like they're, they're different movies because they're different eras. And, but as a producer, you're just kind of going with the times. And a lot of it is just like, can you keep up or can you be ahead of the times? Mm-hmm. And I think what's just interesting about this Craig, I is just how long it's gone on. Is like, I feel like, Casino Royale—they were right at the tip of like, yes, this is like what the industry is wants, and that's what the showcase is. And then it's just again, we have to wait a long time to figure this out. But like, no time to die, and and what comes after that—is it going to be still going with the industry, or are they still going to be kind of, is, are they going to be back to that kind of Bond insular nature where they're just they're just making the Bond movies they want to make? Is there another
2: producer situation? comparable to this the only the, the
0: closest i can think of is like
2: henson company
0: maybe yeah like i said like i like, kind of like a little bit of like early era like walt disney studio where it's again very insular stuff and like in and, and, and then the henson productions uh like muppets onward yeah i feel like that's very right. kind of similar yeah because it, it is right i
2: never like that is the
0: the whole legacy
2: thing is definitely in the whole independent legacy, like the mom and pop shop example that you gave earlier is like probably the best way to right. describe and, it. It's and, very and unique. I would say
0: that even the Disney Studio example, because again, that's just the, the one I have most knowledge of, but it's very much a similar situation in the sense that, like, you know, again, it was like the Disney Studio eventually did get a little bit bigger, but it was still kind of like, you know, hiring all the same directors, all the same you know, having the same songwriters and the same kind of just general studio stuff like within the animation and live action departments. And just like with the with the Bond stuff, when Walt when Walt passes is eventually turned over to his son in law, Ron Miller. Now it's just different because Bond with the Bond stuff, you know, the Brazen era and Broccoli, Robert Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson just continued that trend of success with the whole Brazen era. Whereas with the post Ron Miller era and very much the Brian Henson era of, of Jim Henson, there's a little bit more of a struggle of just like kind of keeping up that legacy. So it very much like, I think like as a whole success, I think that's what's most unique about the, the broccolis is that, you know, they were able to transition and there was like a lucky enough where, you know, Goldeneye, you know, it wasn't like Cubby died and then they immediately took over that golden was still like, Cubby was sick. Cubby was definitely had seen better days, But he was still able to consult and give advice and and help form that movie, whereas Barbara and Michael were like the day-to-day producers on that movie. So there was an actual kind of real true passing of the torch as opposed to like, you know, oh, we have to now, you know, Walt Disney tragically died, Jim Henson tragically died, now we kind of have to pick up the pieces and and figure out what to do. There was actually a gradual transition to like, here's – I'm passing the torch to you. Now it's your franchise. Is there any sense of it going forward, not
2: necessarily with the movies, but just b- like between like the actual them them running it? Is, is do we see like where it could go in the future with who runs it in the future, or is that is it kind of? Like I think up that's there? a little
0: bit far away because I think like Barbara and Michael are still very much like, you know, I mean. Uh, They're not young, but they're not like old. Oh sure, and
2: and again, like like many of these other producer situations, there is a level of, you know, who is their partner and who would they give it? Who would they you know send it off to if they want to go do another thing? And and it's it's definitely I know it's not like that with with them. So it's just kind of one of those situations where you know is the does the is does the legacy continue in an obvious way going forward? I
0: I mean I don't I can't generally say right now to be quite honest i mean i think that you know probably some sort of their families as well Mm -hmm. um but you know i think they're they're still
2: somebody they're intimately close to that they would trust with it yeah
0: yeah i think that there's definitely you know and again i think i think the other thing that the broccolis have in their corner is the the good relationship with the 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 fleming estate as well and, and having that nice connection where they get to keep those rights in basically perpetuity forever and ever until you know
2: any scenario you can see where it's handed off elsewhere signed off somewhere else
0: like in my head the only way it would be if like because it's if if like it's just for whatever reason that like broccoli and wilson decide to sell their steak in it like Mm -hmm. instill the broccoli steak which i can't necessarily imagine unless like things get really bad in terms of like you know, like, lots of flops and, and like, are, are people interested yeah. in Bond. Like, I can't really imagine it, like, in that way, though. I, I also feel like there is a chance more than ever of, like, expansion for the Bond franchise. Like, I do feel like there's a lot more room now, just in the industry in general, but I I, I just, like, you know, all the scuttlebutt around Barbara and, like, kind of what may or may not be in her head, I do feel like if there was ever a time for them to do like a bond, like mini series or like a spinoff, like an actual spinoff, like within the next like new bond era, it's this time. Mm. Cause it's like, obviously like with Cubby again, Cubby was very much of just like, we're focused on bond and the new bond. And you know, even when bond uh, when, when Wilson for the living daylights in that era for the new bond was like, Oh, let's do like young bond and the bond prequel. And, and kind of how he got his 007 number and stuff like that. And brought, brought, it is like, no, we, we don't want to see where Bond's been. We want to see where he's going. I feel like um, there's a lot more opportunity. Because definitely, like, Wilson's definitely been ex- interested in exploring that. And we've kind of seen it a little bit within, you know, Casino Royale and the kind of that earlier Craig era before he became an old man. Um but I feel like there's a lot more opportunity where, like, you know, all the spinoff talk of the Brazen era that never came to be, the Michelle Yao spinoff, the Jinx spinoff, you know, we've talked about that a million times.
2: That's true. I mean, clearly they want to do but all they, that but stuff. But they've
0: definitely explored it and they've definitely had interest in it, you know, from, you know, from the MGM studio and from other studios. And I feel like, you know, again, let's, the way the Craig era has gone hasn't really allowed that for that opportunity um you know it's just like again like casino royale was its own thing and then you had the writer's strike with you know uh quantum and and skyfall was this huge big thing but then you kind of had you know and then you had the specter rights come back so we got to immediately get back into that like oh we're gonna do specter again and then this big gap between specter and no time to die which keeps growing um i just there hasn't been an opportunity for that and i feel like whatever they do next i do feel like there's a good opportunity for them to kind of really expand their producing range, especially since they've started producing non bond movies. I really feel like they're preparing themselves for like producing multiple movies at a time, Um, which has been very distinctly like not the Eon thing to do. Eon is definitely like we're focused on, you know, as again, they might've explored this Michelle Yal spin off in the jinx spinoff, but in terms of the actual production, it's like we are producing, Goldeneye, once Goldeneye is done, okay, we're now into the next one. Tomorrow Never Dies is done, okay, now we're into The World Is Not Neo. It's just like, right, right, it's right. always been one. And I, I do feel like them kind of exploring other films for the first time in, in decades um, with this kind of relationship drama and this other spy movie, The Rhythm Section, that, that came out. I do feel they're kind of preparing their mom and pop Eon shop to, to expand a little bit. I mean...
2: I honestly think they're not letting go any, like anytime soon. Oh no, I
0: mean, I, that, that, again, you was just all speculation, it, but if, but it's like the the Broccoli's are that's their legacy, that's what they do, and I think that's just as long as they're making Bond movies, it's got to be made by a Broccoli. Listen, from everything I've seen,
2: from how long Craig has been Bond, and they won't let him go, they're definitely not letting Bond go anytime no. soon.
0: <laughs> and I, and, but, I, but I also feel like Barbara and Wilson really do you know, despite all the issues that the franchises had and all the ups and downs of the Craig era, I think they truly do hold the legacy that they got from their father, Mm -hmm. like really close to their hearts. And I do feel like they want to continue making these movies because if Cubby was still alive, that's what he would be doing. If Cubby was an immortal being, he would spend the rest of his time, the rest of earth's existence, making Bond movies. Like that's what he was put on his earth to do. And that's what his children uh are putting on this earth to do and what their children's children, you know, will be ninety year old men and they'll still be the broccoli's making Bond movies as far as I as far as I know. <sighs>
2: Well, I'm uh, well. Very, very, very well said. Um, so, uh, any was it, was that it, or was that good closing thoughts on it, or did you have any other?
0: Um, well, in my research, I I did find out that cubby broccoli may or may not have involved been involved with the death of the creator of the Three Stooges.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Let's 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 uh, wrap this up on a fun story, like because you I, you did kind of mention this. Yeah. And I did want to hear this.
0: So basically, how it goes is um. That there's basically this... How do I put this? Uh, Basically, there was... Cubby Broccoli got in a fight with the creator of the Three Stooges. And then that same day they got into the fight, the the creator of the Three Stooges died. (laughs) What? So, the theory was basically like... Mostly it was like they got in the fight and maybe Broccoli, like, you know knocked him out or, like, you know, hit him in a way and, like... Right, right, right. Uh, and so, Brock Gave him a concussion or gave, something. Like, or, like, broke it. Like, you know, it was one of the things where he fell funny and, like, broke his neck or something like that. Like, it's never right. really been established because the problem is, is that Broccoli's story is that, like, it was the... Oh, okay. The other guy was drunk. He pushed me. I kind of pushed him back. We had a fight, but I had nothing... I didn't do anything really wrong. And there was this whole thing where it's, like, they couldn't do the autopsy because they got to the autopsy too late where he's already embalmed. So, like... Okay. So, they couldn't tell if he was actually drunk or, like, what the actual cause of death was because, like, the body had, like, decayed certain certain way. But, basically, that's just kind of, like... That's basically the story is that, you know, he may have been... Yeah, that's not shady at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's also one thing I should mention is that what's kind of really funny about the Broccoli's and, like, the producers of the Bond franchise is that we've always said, this is okay, this is, like, a British production and it is, like... But, like, Broccoli was American, was American New Yorker, you know, and then Saltzman was Canadian. Mm-hmm. And it's like these two, you know, moved to Britain. That even make-
2: makes that partnership more entertaining.
0: Yeah. That's funny. Uh, but basically, yeah, um, that's definitely not shady. Um, yeah, let's see, I have a little bit... More, yeah. Uh, so, the, the alleged story, I should say, is that Broccoli... And another film producer, Bat uh DeSico, basically beat him up so bad that he went to a coma and died. Like that's right. like the story. Well you're burying
2: the lead on this story. Like like what are you what are you saying? You did you a second ago you said you didn't know what
0: happened. I mean, but it's like there's no actual documentation right, what right. Uh, like That's the alleged story. Mm-hmm. And then Broccoli would basically say that, like, you know He was like that when I got there. It was basically like he picked a fight with him. There was a little scuffle, but like Felt but funny. they basically like there was no actual like fight there was like pushing a pushing match you know and then there's like you know did he throw a punch like was it like was there internal damage we don't know because again the autopsy was was messed up jesus um because it's basically like there was like people are like well he died because of the was the brawl and it's like no the dude was an alcoholic he probably drank himself to death that type of thing so
2: there's so oh yeah, there's so many like he 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 fell, they beat him, like he fell funny, he drank himself to death. Like
0: this isn't adding up. <laughs> yeah, there's something fishy going on here. But I mean again, statue of limitations. On murder? <laughs> there is a statue of limitations, Will. I don't think on murder I don't know. I think murder is like the one thing where there's no statue of limitations on. I just don't that just makes me think of the Seinfeld words. It's just like it's a statue of limitations. <laughs> um all right, well that was that was fascinating. I thought that like, um, I thought that was a very good discussion. Yeah, it, it's
2: again it 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 is one of the interesting things that I think that um it's always good to kind of like delve into like the roles of like something like the produce producers, especially on projects like this. And it becomes more and more prevalent in this like age of I don't I would I don't know if it's a golden age, but definitely an age where you know franchises and IP are definitely uh run by these big figureheads yeah. and where the producer definitely mm-hmm. uh, has a name uh, to the franchise yeah. and, uh, the Bro- and the Brock and definitely are no like
0: in, in some ways, like just because of the the media and the, and the landscape we live in, there's definitely more attention on those yeah. types of producers as well. Like even again, like I mentioned, like you did have like the superstar making a lot of movie producers like Laurentis and Corman, but like even like the st- Feige and Blum have their own type of star power that they are on the forefront of these, you know, they're, franchises and studios like they're very much like the face of them in many ways oh and
2: i mean you, you even have directors and creatives who have done work themselves who have probably a lot more producer credits like you have the jj abrams and the lord and millers mm-hmm. who have at this point are i mean, probably like how producing much, like, more than they've and made spielberg yeah at this 12, 12 day and age. spielberg obviously yeah. <laughs> uh spielberg i wonder like how many i mean he must have you think he has like slightly more producer credits than he does directing credits? I mean, it's just kind of de- his is a little bit more even. Yeah, it's I, a little bit more say, even, yeah. but
0: like, but it's definitely there. Yeah. Like, even like, even like, like, how like Jordan Peele, you know, is kind of like that same kind of realm where it's like, yes, he's still like directing his own stuff, but oh like, yeah, but he's got, his, but he's definitely got like, his yeah. hands. You know, like again, the whole thing about Candyman is like it's like a Jordan Peele movie, but like it's not directed by him; he's like producing yeah. it. that's I mean,
2: thing. it's like the the Lord of Miller thing is a great example, but then again, it it goes to show like how. That creative voice like comes to life like you know you may like directing things but you know maybe you're just like having your hand in yeah like, maybe the creative process. maybe you can be like one of the major creative forces but who goes and does the day to day yeah uh you know maybe somebody else mm-hmm. and, you know then uh it's it's interesting what a wacky what a wacky industry yeah. this is um well cool all right well thanks for bringing that to the table that was, right. that, that was interesting. Um, so, uh, what do we, so what, what, what do we, this was a bond one. What do we mention? Do we mention what we're doing bond next? Well, I guess we should, because everything's just been upended. Yeah. So I guess <laughs> just, to, just to
0: confirm, you know, now we, we do not have a new movie, uh, in August, uh, in April to talk about yeah. or in August, to be quite honest with you. Um, but we're still going to be doing knives out on our next mainline bond episode. Yes. Next month
2: is the celebration of Craig.
0: Yes. Yeah. And then uh, I'll also say, fans of the Bonzilla Podcast, if you do want us to properly review the core oh God. at some point, reach oh out no. to us on social don't, media.
2: Don't entertain him. Actually, y- yes, because that would make my day, but don't, but do it.
0: You know, give us give us some positive feedback on our on our memories of the core from earlier in the episode. Hashtag
2: more core.
0: That would be the name. Come on. Come on. Let's get if it. Let's we get did it the trending. Core, more core is definitely the name of our core minute podcast. Listen, if we get
2: more core trending on Twitter, we will do it.
0: <laughs> We're not going to get it trending. <laughs> That's why. <laughs>
2: All right. If we get enough enthusiasm for the hashtag more core, then we'll do it. Yes. How about that?
0: Um, but I also should say... Which, which the
2: enthusiasm level will be arbitrarily chosen by know, us. You we, know,
0: we're the Bond episode, but I do want to say, if you're someone who normally listens just to the Bond episodes or maybe focuses on those, our next Godzilla episode is going to be very, very unique. Um, oh, yeah. It's going to be a very oh, yeah. a kind of experimental episode one. because we're going to be taking a look at not a a produced movie, but we're going to be taking a look at a script... Uh, the original script for the 90s Godzilla movie that 1994. was 1994 uh, when it was written by Elliot and Rocio. So uh, I've actually read the script for the, for once. I'm going to go through this, it again.
2: This goes to show the writer in Nick because he blasted through the script. It takes me forever to get through scripts. I'm, I'm awful at just reading. I yeah. can read.
0: Yeah. Just not that But great. it's just like it. it's going to be a very unique episode. Our next one on the timeline. Um, so yeah, I stay, definitely stay like recommend that recommend it if you if you if you're mainly a Bond uh, produce uh, episode person. But I will also say if you're mainly a Bond episode person. Um, I've had a couple people talk to me about how they st- they start with the Bond episodes and then they moved on to the Godzilla episodes and even though they haven't seen those movies and vice versa.'ve we, uh, heard
2: tough. we've heard uh, like some uh, a lot of people kind of cr- jump the aisle as it were
0: to, yeah. to, to do and they, they definitely enjoyed listening and, and learning about that other franchise. So definitely you know be open-minded.
2: Absolutely. All right you you've plugged in other episodes so you guys know where to find us so until the next episode. Good night. Hashtag more core. More core.